Well, after finding your way to that passage and having it read, I'm going to invite you to go back to the first reading, uh, the one Liam brought to us, Genesis uh, chapter 1 and 2. Um, we will you know, keep a finger in there, we'll touch a little on that passage from 1 Corinthians a little later on, but uh, let's pray as we come to God's Word. Our Lord and Father, uh, we thank you that you're a God who loves us and speaks to us and that your Word is life and we pray that as we come to it, uh, we might see its goodness afresh. Uh, new gems that would uh, comfort us and assure us, truths that would change us and transform us, that we might live for your glory and the good of others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, wrote a poem. The title's not that creative, um, Who Am I? Uh, But he wrote it from the confines of a Nazi concentration camp and Um, In the poem, there's a a small part of it there, but in the poem he expresses that kind of disconnect between um, how he appears to others, the the confidence he has, and the inner trembling, what he's like on the inside, that that kind of uncertainty that we all know to varying degrees. That mismatch between um, who we feel we are, how we present to others, and then who we imagine we should be, and, and which if any of those, is the real me. Uh, And so the poem finishes, you can see it there, who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once? A hypocrite before others and before myself, a contemptibly woe-begone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, those lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. In the middle of the wrestling, he arrives at a point. We might not know ourselves, but God knows us, and God knows you, and better still, he tells us. And so Genesis 1, verse 27, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness we're his we're his Um, our maker explains humanity he says clearly every person is God's image and in the coming weeks as Liam said we're going to be exploring living as God's image we'll look at marriage and singleness and friendship uh, and today a a kind of starting point a foundational point God defining humanity Uh, and as much as I'm going to seek to be clear in giving a framework it may raise as many questions as are answered and as uh, Liam wisely counselled, explore those conversations. Um, you know, that, that's what supper in part is for. Uh, God speaks that we would think his thoughts after him and he speaks so that we would know ourselves and understand others and respond rightly to him. And, and so to our uncertainty, that kind of internal disconnect, God clearly says every person is God's image. And we're going to look at humanity in three parts. Uh, first, humanity is honoured as God's image. Every person is valuable. So Genesis 1:26, God makes humanity in his likeness. Uh, we, we miss the shock of this. In the cultures of the day, only the kings were God's image, only those with the absolute power, only a, a handful. But the Bible honours all and everyone. Uh, and his likeness is seen in three R's, relationship, rule, reflection. So humanity is made for relationship. 
1 verse 27, we are made like him, a complex unity. God created um, man, singular, in the original there, in his own image. Just as there is one God, there is one humanity, but in the image of God he created them, plural. You know, the, the true God is three persons. It's hinted at a little earlier in, in verse 1 and 2, we didn't read it, um, but we're, with God and the Word and the Spirit all there. And of course the original um, word for God used in verse 26 and 7 is a plural, but it's got a singular verb. I know it's all a bit grammatical, but the idea is it's mixing together, that singular and plural, tying together, we're a complex unity. One humanity, male and female. As God is a com- community of other-centred love that our relationships mirror. We're made for relationship. And humanity is made to rule. Uh, 1 verse 28, uh, God blesses humanity. He commands us, be fruitful, increase, fill, um, subdue. Rule. Uh, We act this way on God's behalf. So God began by naming creation. Um, In Genesis 1, he's calling light day, dark night. And then you get into chapter 2, and you you can read it later. Chapter 2, he invites Adam. You you keep going in that work. He invites him. You name the animals. So image bearing is um, to work, to to care for, to cultivate God's creation. Uh, Use the word there, subdue which is a strong word, a strong word, the idea of asserting your will over something, conforming it to your will. Um, like gardeners, you know, we, we rearrange what God has given to make it more fruitful. You know, think that the beautiful Wollongong Botanic Gardens, you know, rather than us um, kind of being park rangers, you know, let's just preserve, leave everything out as it is, or, or being kind of rampant developers, you know, let's just concrete it all. No, 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 we, we, we garden, we cultivate that. Make it more fruitful. As God's image, you rearrange the raw materials he has given in such a way that helps the world flourish in general and people in particular to flourish. We're made to rule. Humanity is made to reflect. So God speaks about plants in verse 11 and he speaks about animals in 1 verse 24. He speaks about them, but he then starts speaking to animals in 1 verse 22 and in verse 28 he speaks to humanity. And then Genesis 2, it goes further. God starts to speak with Adam. As we're, we're invited to share in God's creative word, we're made to reflect God, to engage him, speak with him like an ima, a, a mirror, uh, mirror image. Um, we, we reflect God best, of course, when there's no barrier between us, when there's that direct kind of communication. Uh, to bear God's image is to have the capacity not just to relate to each other, but to relate with God himself and to listen to his voice and be heard by him. What a privilege. What an honour. Humanity is God's image. We're a complex unity. And in his good design, he made us individually whole. A body and a soul. Not parts in opposition, but deeply united. Uh, In Mark 10, verse 28, uh, Jesus reminds of God's eternal intention that even though a body is separated from the soul at death, Body and soul are reunited in the resurrection, no matter the outcome of the resurrection on the day of judgment. So we are all embodied souls. We are integrated persons, even into heaven or hell. And so in Psalm 139, which is a beautiful psalm and known to many of us, if you don't know it, read over it again. It's, it's a lovely, beautiful, it's a picture of God's intimate knowledge of us. And we see there that the, the soul is the soul of the body, as the body is the body of the soul. Um, Rob, they're bound together. Rob Smith reflects on that psalm, Psalm 139. He says, There is no person or soul or spirit. Sorry, that's John Stott. Yeah, my apologies. I should label people better. Um, 
Let me say what Rob Smith says. He says, There's no person or soul or spirit that has been created independently of the body and then placed in the body or perhaps the wrong body. No, no, the Lord knit my body together in my mother's womb. We're an integrated body and soul. God made us purposefully and personally and whole. We're God's image. And that's powerfully uplifting. We might, know, we might not know ourselves. We might feel you know, troubled on the inside, but God tells us we're his and we are valuable over all creation, honoured above all because of our connection to him. Not something within him, but in, in, in us, but in him. Uh, John Stott explains it. And now we'll get John Stott up. Thanks, Margaret. Sorry about that. Um, Stott puts it, the biblical revelation reminds us that human beings are not self-explanatory. They derive their meaning from outside themselves, not from within, from out there, from God in whose image they are made. We are not autonomous individuals, a law unto ourselves, making ourselves up, created constantly by the decisions and choices we make. No, we are images, we are reflections. The dignity of our humanity is derivative. It comes from him in whose image we bear, we are dependent beings. Our dignity, our value, our our honour is derivative. We matter because of him. Uh, And so the passionate atheist uh, Sam Harris, uh, he was debating how it is that we establish values. Uh, And he picked up a a glass. Conveniently, I've got one. Uh, And he said of the glass, uh, what if I tell you this is not just um, an ordinary glass, this is actually Elton John's glass from his concert here uh, last night. Um, How much do you want to pay me for it? He's making a very helpful point about value, isn't it? Like like the glass itself, um, maybe only worth a dollar or something, but the glass in connection to a celebrity and a kind of cultural icon, Elton John, suddenly it's worth thousands more. He's saying it's got a derivative value. The value of the glass is dependent, derivative. Why is it that people matter, that you matter? Why do we wrestle as a nation about the gap suffered by Indigenous people and a desire to close it? Why do we feel so deeply about what's going on in Gaza and Israel when it's the other side of the world and we don't know those people directly? See, our chemical makeup values us at, what, maybe a couple of hundred dollars, I don't know, but um, put a person to work and, yeah, they're going to earn more for you. And if you've got to create your own value by, by performance, the reality is some people are going to be more valued than others. That, you know, there are some you know, glasses that are crystal and others will be considered disposable. And into that God says, no, every person matters because of our connection to him, our reflection of him. As humanity is honoured as God's image, not by our performance, but by what he gives to us, it means every life is sacred. You know, the equal dignity of every person is not self-evident. It is not the product of the Enlightenment. It flows from the Scriptures. Uh, Remove God and human not rights disappear. You know, the inevitable logic of coming from nothing, heading to nothing, means that all the bit in between is nothing. Without God, equality is groundless. We long for it. You know, even the atheist grieves the conflict in Gaza. I'm not saying that they don't, but it's groundless. Life's sanctity is not self-evident, but it is instinctive. It's in the heart. And we, every person, we are valuable. Every person you've seen is valuable as God's image. And can I say this is a wonderful truth that we need and those around us need. Because this truth lifts a burden, a burden of our making. Our sin, our our inclination to not listen to our Creator and and to be self-determining, 
disconnects us from him and from others, even from ourselves. You know, from Genesis 3 on, you can read about it in Genesis 3, exactly the, the impact, but from Genesis 3 on, our experience is as a distorted image. And, and Romans 8 talks about all creation now groaning. We live in the groaning. Sin's impact burdens us all in different ways and our culture and our neighbours and our friends, they are burdened by trying to find their true self. Now, there is a, a deep anxiety in that, you know, having to define yourself. What if you get it wrong? And and there's pain in trying to bend creation when your internal idea of your real you doesn't align with your body and surrounds. I don't want to minimise the pain of that. Trivialise. Mock. And it is crushing to have to earn your value, to, to have to do something to prove you matter to other people, to be constantly performing and saying, have I done enough? See, our sin disrupts creation, but it doesn't destroy it. Broken as we are, we still bear his image. And that speaks louder than our disconnection. It says, you matter. Now, self-esteem experts say that what secures us is the praise of the praiseworthy. That when someone you respect praises you, it fills you up. And there is none more praiseworthy than God. And God says, you bear my likeness. And his image, therefore, says to those who feel less worthy, unworthy, it says, you matter. And his image says to those who are drawing their value from insecure sources like like family or wealth or work or looks or friendship, good things but not secure, you can't hold on to them, they will pass. It says you don't need them. Enjoy them but you don't need them. And his image frees us to honour those the world forgets and ignores because all are in his image. And it emboldens us to stand up against those who the world fears. And, And can I say, this is what... Our friends, our neighbours, our world needs to hear and this is what our hearts need to cling to. Humanity is honoured as God's image. Secondly, with that, humanity is distinct in God's image. A difference is to be delighted in. So Genesis 1, verse 27, male and female, he created them. Um, The Bible is refreshingly clear about basic binary sex that that biological difference in Genesis 1 of male and female is developed in Genesis 2 with the gendered nouns man and woman. Um, So Rob Smith again, but this time I think I have a picture and a full quote. Um, He says this, the clear implication of this move from male and female, Genesis 1, to man and woman, Genesis 2, is an implication everywhere confirmed as the biblical narrative unfolds. In other words, it keeps going on through the Bible is that a person's biological sex reveals and determines both their objective gender, what gender they are in fact, and certain key gender roles should, be, should they be taken up. That is, human males grow into men and potentially fathers and um, husbands, and human females grow into women and potentially wives and mothers. A person's biological sex reveals their actual gender, determines their true gender identity and establishes certain gender roles. Now, difficult as this might be for some of us wrestling with these issues to hear, humanity is distinct in God's image. Um, Now, of course, the major thrust of the Scripture, the the vast bulk of the Bible is that it's our common humanity uh, as men and women. That's, you know, that first point we talked about, of us at all in the image of God, that's the main way the Bible speaks. That's the big thrust of the Bible. The Bible almost entirely addresses us as people rather than separately. Now, but, but we're looking at the distinction now with a little bit more length because of the air we breathe 
which doesn't deny our common humanity, but is struggling with our difference. Uh, difference, let me say again, is not about value. Difference is grounded in God himself. God is one, Father, Son and Spirit and God is love in one John. God is perfect relationship. Perfect because each member acts in complete unity and loving service. That is, and, it, and it's a perfect relationship based on distinction. That they don't all do the same task. The, the Spirit didn't die on the cross. The Father didn't become flesh. The Son doesn't decide when he'll return. And within that perfect relationship there is an order the father sent the son into the world jesus comes to do the father's will the son doesn't send the father nor the spirit both the father and the the son send the spirit but all three are worshipped honored adored as their distinctive service is actually a cause for delight now in john 10 17 that's why the father loves the son The, the, the difference used in loving service that's what blesses and it's a joy and God's distinctiveness is reflected in humanity, male and female, he created them. As we're made different in sex, expressed in gender, that we might draw closer as one humanity. Now sadly, again, that's not our experience. We're this side of Genesis 3. Sadly, sin distorts that distinction and alienates us as people, um, alienates us from one another and even for some from within themselves. Sin disrupts creation. It means our world is confused about gender, whether it exists at all. And some will be wrestling even here with those feelings of disconnection with your own body. And into this confusion and pain, God speaks with clarity and compassion. Clarity about both creation and our brokenness. That means we are all, in some way, not what we were made to be. And compassion in inviting all to come to Jesus, whatever your struggles, trust his love to be restored now in part and in eternity experience wholeness. See, in Christ our humanity is restored that we might delight in our difference. Come with me over to 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, um, page 1152, um, there Paul Uh, kind of expounds creation's picture of men and women in a community that has been restored in Christ, a community where gender difference is honoured. 11 verse 7, both man and woman are the image of God, um, but but 11 verse 3 speaks to distinction. I want you to realise the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. It's written very carefully. Paul doesn't write a simple line order of headship. He doesn't go, this is not what he does, um, you know, God, Christ, man, woman. No, he plays with the order. Man's head is Christ, woman's head is man, Christ's head is God. He, he's carefully writing to say whether you're male or female, Jesus is your model. He's the one you look to. So 11 verse 3, manhood looks to the, the, the headship of Christ, that men are display loving and sacrificial authority like Christ. Um, head meaning authority, but not in a dominating or abusive way. There is no excuse for men abusing power anywhere, especially in the church, in the restored community. It is authority in the sense of responsibility, taking initiative to bring justice and taking initiative for an ownership of the spiritual health of the community and and bearing the cost and the pain when it goes wrong. We think of all the ways in which Jesus uses power and authority and that's the, the kind of headship men are called to and it's on men to reflect on why some women feel alienated and hurt by church. And 11 verse 3, womanhood looks to the humility of Christ, uh, to display the selfless work of Christ, just as Christ actively chose not to assert himself in the garden, 
As he, he chose to lay the power aside um, uh, according to the Father's plan to save that women are invited to display humility in the life of the church. Um, Dr Claire Smith, she writes this. Um, we might be able to get it on the screen. Thanks. It's great work, Margaret. Um, she writes, it's important to notice what it does not say. It does not say all women are to submit to all men. It is coming at the relationship from the other end. It is about headship rather than submission. Also, it does not say that women are second-class citizens with less dignity, intelligence, worth and purpose than men. Just as Jesus is not diminished in divinity and glory because his head is God, neither are we diminished because our head is man. And at the same time, it does not say there is no difference in relationship between men and women. The assumption of this verse is there is an order in the relationship between men and women that is analogous to that of Christ and God. Humanity is distinct in God's image and we're invited to express that difference rather than blur gender distinction. Now in Corinth, um, the the principle is displayed through covering. Um, Every culture has um, rules about appropriate fashion, you know, uh, we, we know it here, we live by the beach, it is fine to wear your swimmers at the beach, I commend it, like that, that's you know, great, if you're swimming in the ocean, great. It is not okay to wear those same speedos in a fine dining restaurant. You know, we, we know the clothing makes statements and in first century Corinth, a married woman's veil was a, a sign of her status. Um, our, our equivalent symbolic fashion is, is the wedding ring, it's, it makes a statement but it's not particularly functional. Um, we don't have an item of clothing that culturally expresses that difference between man and woman in the same way, so we don't have women wear hats in church, but, but we, we find ways to express that difference and to delight in that difference because there is a, a principle that is deeper than the culture. You know, he, he bullet points a few things, you know, verse 3, God's order, verse 8, 9, creation, verse 10, the angels, that'll get you talking over supper, uh, verse 11, the nature of things, verse 16, it's the practice of all churches. Um, we delight in difference thoughtfully. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin writes this, we must affirm the goodness of male and female bodies without clinging to unbiblical gender stereotypes. If Jesus cooked for his disciples, wept with his friends and took babies in his arms, we don't need to pretend manhood is just about loving cars, watching sports and lifting weights. And if Jesus had some of his most important theological conversations with women, we must not act as if women only care about cooking and clothes. So that, that expression of difference, it's, it's more than an outward sign, it's a heart, it's the, in the redeemed community, the restored community, we relate from the overflow of a heart that actually delights in God's creation and loves his ways without resorting to simplistic rules. Hearts that affirm equal value, value but honour distinctives. Hearts that find security in God who knows us better than we know ourselves. Even as we reflect on that, uh, and come to our third and final point, humanity is united by God's image. For um, true humanity is in Christ. See, um, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. God tells us who we are and yet even as we hear it, we can still feel disconnected. Even as we look at a picture of what a restored community could look like, we still maybe feel Disconnected. As we've seen what humanity is, maybe Bonhoeffer's words sting still. You know, who am I, a hypocrite before others? You know, the, the description that God gives of humanity is not me. You know, I, I can't rule myself, let alone the world. I, I don't constantly look at others, everyone, and just kind of go, oh, wow, there's the image of God, what a delight. What, let me honour and value every... Um, I don't always work with others and give myself in love to bless them. 
to God as he describes humanity. He says, this is what I've made at points can make us feel subhuman. You know, I'm a distorted image still and you might feel the same. And in that moment, if you're feeling in that place, um, we've fallen again into the trap of looking within to find ourselves. God invites us, no, no, don't look within, look to him that we might be truly human. That's Paul's logic in 1 Corinthians 11. You know, male and female, he created them. The, the base unit of humanity is not individuals, but persons in relationship. Uh, and 1 Corinthians is there showing us how Christ redeems what, Christ, uh, what sin destroyed. But one, 11 verse 11, it's key, in the Lord. However, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. It's, it's in the Lord we are reconnected back. That, that, you know, in coming to Christ, we are restored to his image, restored as humans. So we come to him, though, because he first came to us. Now, Colossians 1 verse 15 tells us the Son is the image of the invisible God. So here is the Son. He enters the world as one of us. And he is what humanity always should have been. He is the, the perfect reflection of the perfect relationship and though he, he rules all this creation, he goes to the cross for your failings and mine that he might be the head of a new creation, a restored, a fixed creation. And his cross does restore all things, including you and me who come to him, restoring us in God's image. Now in part, one day in full. So whatever your, your struggles and wrestles with who you are that we experience we're, we're, you know, in part, the solution is for us all, come to Christ. Look to him. You know, Jesus' love for us is so great that not only will he accept anyone who comes to him, he promises that he will not leave any of us as we are, as we were when we first came to him. No, his mercy will transform us into his likeness as we grasp more and more him. See, to be truly human, there is a better question to ask than who am I? Uh, it's a question Jesus asked of his disciples. He said, who do you say I truly am? in answering that, looking more closely at Jesus, understanding him, that is the way forward. So to be truly human, to truly know yourself is not to look within but look more to him, to truly know Christ. For God says you are our image, our likeness. Let me pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank and praise you as the God who is great creator, the God who is love, Father, Son and Spirit, the God whose delight was to have that love overflow and make us in your image. And Father, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus, who came as one of us to restore us. Um, even as we reflect on these things, we, we see our own failings, we see the failings of our community to be what you made us, and yet we long for the new creation to come when we'll be that in full. And Father, as we wait for that time, may we look to him, may we see him more clearly, and we pray for our community. Uh, so confused, so lost, uh, speak in such a way that they might know you and your kindness be restored. In Jesus' name, amen.